This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Good afternoon. How are you today? Good to have you along. A little later in the hour, we're going to talk about the um, seasonal conditions in the state's grain-growing regions because most of that region has had a pretty dry season, as you would be well aware. But you might be thinking to yourself that your soil has retained a lot of the expensive nutrients that you've put onto your paddocks this season, thinking that the rain hasn't just washed it all away. But think again. You will hear from a deep herd specialist in this area just after news headlines at half past 12 today. And we'll also have a wrap of the Catanning sheep sale, which is the last Catanning sheep sale for this year. All the details, the yarding and the prices for you just before the news at one o'clock today. Six past 12 here on the Country Hour on the ABC right across Western Australia and on the ABC Listen app. Straight to the north of the state today because Quintus, the world's largest Indian sandalwood company, is set to wind up all of its managed investment scheme projects in Kununurra's Ord Valley in a bid to avoid further investment losses. The decision is going to remove nearly 4,000 hectares of Quintus's tree plantations, including some in the NT, and it follows an independent assessment which found the schemes were not financially viable and would have cost investors more than $30 million to complete. Richard Henfrey is the CEO of Quintus and says the assessment of the MIS projects was commissioned by Sandalwood Properties Limited. Yes, so um, the responsible entity for the MIS schemes is a company called Sandalwood Properties Limited. Sandalwood Properties is a subsidiary of Quintus, but it operates independently with an independent board. Uh, And the important thing to note about about the responsible entity is that its job is to look after the interests of the growers, which is why the independence of the board is is um, is important. So I'm a director of Sandalwood Properties, uh, and the the rest of the board is two independent non-executive directors. And between the three of you, you have lodged an application with the Supreme Court of WA to wind up the TFS. 2007 to 2016 sandalwood projects. Can you just explain to me in, in what context is wind up? What does that mean here? Yeah, so the, the, the issue with the schemes is that the, there are just, there's just too much supply and the market hasn't been able to absorb the increases in supply that we've had over the last um, couple of years. Uh, and I, you, you and I, Alice, have talked before about the, the decline in price in the, in the MIS tenders. Uh, over over the last few years, um, so we uh, have had some concerns about the viability of the MIS schemes uh, in a in an environment where the the future increase in supply is is very significant. So if you think back 15 years ago when these plantations were established, um, there were just far too many trees planted. So the board of the responsible entity has had concerns about the viability of the schemes. And as a result of those concerns, we appointed KPMG to effectively do a viability assessment, um, an independent assessment 
to form an opinion on whether the schemes uh, should should be continued or, or, or shouldn't be. Uh, KPMG's uh, opinion that we received last week uh, was that the that the none of the schemes are viable and they should therefore all be all be wound up. Um, as I mentioned, the RE has to act in the interests of the investors, um, and in fact, the interests of the investors are best served by the winding up because that means there'll be no further costs to bear. Uh, and in fact, in some of the schemes, there's some there's some funds in escrow for investors that will be returned will be returned to investors if we wind them up. So there's 2.5 million escrowed to investors from 2012 to the 2016 schemes. What about those investors in the 2007 to 2011 schemes? So there's no there's no funds held in escrow for those investors, but the wind up will mean that there's no further cost to pay. Uh, if we didn't wind the schemes up and they went through to harvest, there'd be very significant harvest costs, uh, sales and marketing costs, land remediation costs, um, and further lease and management costs uh, for the for the investors to pay. So even though there's no return of funds from those schemes, uh, it's certainly um, KPMG's view and our view that those schemes are um, those investors are better off in the wind up situation. And are we talking here about all of Quintus's MIS projects? So yes, effectively, um, uh, the, the, the schemes that we're looking at, the 20, 2007 through to 2016, is all of the remaining MIS projects, yes. And I'm reading a 2018 ABC News article here about the recapitalization of Quintus. Mm. It's saying that Quintus will honour all of its agreements with managed investment scheme investors and by doing that, 200 employees will keep their jobs. Will there be significant job losses with this news? No, we don't expect so. Um, so there are uh, we, we use third-party contractors for the majority of the operational activity in the Valley. Um, so obviously we have some negotiations to be done with those guys. We still have a significant plantation estate that will need to be, need to be managed. So we're not seeing any... Um, significant reduction in staff. Um, clearly, the estate will be smaller. We'll be looking for opportunities to to, um, to find efficiencies in our business. Um, but that number of two hundred employees, which is about the about the total number of employees of, of Quintus, uh, that's that's about where we are today. And, and I don't see that changing significantly. Here, where I'm sitting in the Ord Valley, Sandalwood has just been a key part of the Kununurra community for so long, supporting so many families in the process. What do you think the mood will be on the back of this announcement? Look, there's no doubt in my mind that this is a um, this is a disappointing uh, announcement. It's a disappointing day. Uh, I think Sandalwood has a role to play. We still we're still optimistic that the market um, can be developed and that there's a you know, significant demand for the processed products that we we sell around the world. So we believe that Sandalwood still has a role to play in the you know, broad, broadly in the in the north of Australia, and I expect there'll be sandalwood in the valley for for you know a long time to come. I think what we're just seeing is the implications of of the extent to which um, the the size of the plantations just grew uh, out of all out of all proportion um, in in the early days of of planting. So I think we should look at this as a as a leveling um, a leveling event. The the, the sandalwood 
estate in Kananara and, uh, and and across across our estate anyway will be a bit smaller. Um, but I think there's a uh, sustainable and ongoing sort of core business in here that's actually reasonably reasonably attractive and still has some challenges to get through. But um, you know we're we're pretty committed to to going forward and developing that. Um, with the remainder of the estate, we expect to be a little bit more flexible, so we'll be able to match better supply and demand. And if uh, you know if if demand's weak and price is weak, we will have the option. You know, it'll cost us or our, or our investors, but we'll have the option to delay harvest on some of our some of our produce um, to to try and manage to try and manage that um, a little bit better than we can in the MIS structure. So I think um, what you will see is a maturing of the of the market um, and an ability for you know ourselves and and other other owners of sandalwood um, to make more commercial decisions about how much produce is harvested when and how it's taken the market. Quintus CEO Richard Henfrey speaking to Alice Marshall about the company's decision to wind up its Indian sandalwood managed investment scheme projects in the Ord Valley. Has this affected you, this decision by Quintus? Are you in the Ord Valley? What does it mean to you? Let me know on the text 0448 922 Well, let's head to the Ord Valley now to see how farmers and landholders are going to be affected by this decision. David Menzel is the president of the Wyndham East Kimberley Shire. David, what's your reaction firstly to the Quintus decision to wind up these managed investment scheme projects in a bid to try and avoid further investment losses? Yeah, I guess at a local level, we, we were quite concerned about the way they were travelling and and uh, I guess the sooner these decisions are made, the better chance of investors and, and landowners getting any monies that are owing. So, yeah, I think the timing is probably good with the cotton industry just around the corner. And obviously, yeah, the sooner it's sorted out, the better. What are the implications for farmers and landholders in the region then, David? What, how are they connected to Quintus and its projects? Yeah, so Quintus have been both a landholder and a, a, a major leasee of, of land in the Ord Valley in particular. So many farmers over, you know, since the sugar industry really have, benefited from leasing to the sandalwood companies and that's given a, a steady income we're just in the beginning of um, a new era with cotton coming in so the trees have filled in a gap in the meantime and um, i think we'll be we'll be quite grateful to have that land back and available for a cotton industry. We're hearing some concerns from uh, the community in the ord that there haven't been payments made for the leases. Are you also hearing that, that the last payment that was due, I think, in September for some farmers, that hasn't been paid? Yes, certainly I'm hearing the same stories and that's a concern. I think certainly I know some of the suppliers have been paid, but maybe some of the landowners haven't. That's what I'm hearing. So again, the sooner the the administrator gets in there and tidies things up, the better chance everyone's got of coming out with something and hopefully coming out with everything they owed. The other concern that I'm hearing uh, today too is that there are some farmers who have trees on their property and are now concerned about, you know, what happens to those trees, you know, if they're not going to be harvested and then the rehabilitation of those areas 
to be able to grow, as you said, David, other things like cotton, for example. Yeah, that's a major concern because there's a, a farm full of trees like you've seen in the south with blue gums or any other timber trees. It's a heck of a liability on the land. Uh, getting rid of that, you know, many thousands of dollars a hectare of work to, to try and get those trees out and get that land ready again for intensive farming. So there's a fair way to go then with this. The announcement just late yesterday afternoon from Quintus about winding up all of its managed investment scheme projects and then sort of the the flow-on effect of that for the farmers in the community. Uh, It's not exactly the Christmas present everyone was looking for, but I guess, as I said before, the sooner it's it's sorted out, it, it was looking a little bit inevitable anyway. Uh, the sooner it's sorted out, the better chance everyone's got of, of coming out of this um, with, you know, some sort of, fo- or with the least financial pain, I guess. But, yeah, it's it's not looking particularly attractive at the moment, given there's thousands of hectares of trees here, and that's that's a lot of work, just having the capacity to clear that land and get it back into production. Is, that's going to take two or three years, I would imagine, even if they made a full-on attempt at it. And how many farmers, landholders affected, do you think, David? I mean, do you have a, any idea about that? Oh, look, there's not that many of us up here, um, but the, the, there must be six to 12. It's that sort of number, but it's a significant portion of the land. You know, stage one of the odds, we say it's 15,000 hectares. So, you know, if it's three or so thousand hectares in the odd, that's a significant chunk of this land that's um, going to be impacted and need sorting out. And with a decision like this to wind up those managed investment scheme projects with the Sandalwood, do you think there's much of a future for the industry in the Ord following a decision like this? I I probably don't, to be honest. I think the land's too valuable. Uh, There's probably some other lands that are less valuable, haven't got that high infrastructure cost attached to them. You know, we've got a fully fully developed irrigation system here and lots of overheads. So I think they'll find there might be, you know, some of those territory operations might be a, a better opportunity to make a return. I think um, people I talk to in the industry who've been there for a long time, there's certainly um, the product grows well and, and there is a market there, but I think going from a very little supply to a, a large supply of sandalwood oil probably has been a bit of a shock to the market and haven't come to terms with that either. So returns are possibly not what was being anticipated. And this could be then the, the final nail in the coffin for sandalwood in the Ord. Is that what you're saying? Well, let's see how they go. They might have a different, I think so much of it's about the financial structures and, and not the agronomic um, practices. So there may be some better financial structures there that allow for the production of some sandalwood, but I'm, I'm certainly expecting that the demand from the landowners will be for them to get their land back and, and get into the cotton industry and, and the corn corn industry. Uh, I think that will probably outprice the sandalwood, and but it's got to be acknowledged timber and these you know decades long industries. It's just enormously difficult to finance these things. And I'm not sure that anyone's got the perfect model for doing that. Um, Certainly an annual crop is a lot easier to manage the financials on. David, really good to get your thoughts. Thank you so much. Thanks, Belinda. Cheers. And Merry Christmas.
Oh, and a Merry Christmas to you. David Menzel, here's the president of the Wyndham East Kimberley Shire. 21 past 12 here on the Country Hour. Sam Paton is an agricultural valuer and consultant who's followed the managed investment scheme story for years now. He says MIS projects are promoted to investors as having a twofold benefit, a tax break and a little extra superannuation. I guess you'd call it. But right from the start, the schemes also raised a few red flags. Well, managed investment schemes, there's a responsible entity like TFS who takes the money from investors and then they're going to um, develop the whole scheme and for all intents and purposes, the investor is totally passive. And the idea was that this will achieve an outcome which will, at its best, the way it was promoted, give a tax benefit and also in these tree schemes where you've got a long lead time between growth and uh, planting and maturity, uh, it was a sort of, a, in inverted commas, uh, some superannuation for investors. So it was promoted as a, du- a twofold benefit to mums and dads investors and one of the things that also struck us about managed investment schemes when we first talked with insolvency practitioners was that there was nothing in writing about what happens if the scheme goes, you know, falls on hard times. For example, some companies were leasing land, freehold land, and there was never anything in writing in these MIS documents about if the responsible entity can no longer pay the rent, uh, what happens? That went to the high court. Right. So just on that, Sam, I know of growers in the Ord Irrigation Scheme who have leased land to Quintus. That land is now filled with Indian sandalwood trees, which we learn now really don't have a viable market. Where is that grower today? What do they do? Well, that's a very good question because... The only issue where there was something, say, in a southern temperate property where there might be some value left, um, the landlord um, freehold owner went to court ultimately to find out, because they were just in a freeze, there was just this standoff, and they were told, well, yeah, it's your, it reverts back to you as the landlord because the responsible entity can't pay the rent, so they're in default. But in the worst case scenario, the landowner has to clean up the plantation as it stands, if it's not viable, at their own cost. And so so there, could another... be, there could be some lawyers heading towards Kununurra and the Northern Territory soon then? I would be backing that in, yes, yes. <laughs> so we've seen Quintus now winding up all of its MIS projects. Back in the day, we saw the collapse of Timbercorp Rewards Great Southern, the list goes on. Are there any MISs left in this nation? I don't think so because I think Wilmont Forests were in the southern New South Wales area in softwoods, in in pine. They went over too. As far as I know, there's very little active, uh, if any, MIS left because I think there was an amendment to the Tax Act. You mentioned mum and dad investors. For those yep. who bought into the dream of Indian sandalwood, what does today look like for them? Yes, well, it's interesting. There were lots of uh, high net worth people 
Um, I wouldn't have any idea of the profile of the investors in these schemes, but I know, if I recall, uh, you might know better than me, but I recall at one stage, someone with these schemes, they had Daniel Ricardo and <laughs> Adam, Adam Gilchrist. Gilchrist. Yes, you're right. Yeah, as, as the sort of ambassadors. And, you know, as soon as I saw that, flags went up and I thought, What's, is there anything different about this Sandalwood um, operation that distinguishes it positively from all the others? And I didn't know enough about it, but that point that's on that article that you sent me the link to is uh, the Quintus uh, operative was quoted, I think, as saying that anything that's, that's supply-driven like this is bound to run into problems because wasn't there a stat in there that the market price or spot price had fallen it's, 50%. It's fallen by 50%. And if they were to yeah. harvest what was set to be harvested yes. next year, they, they flood yes. a market that already can't handle it. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, and I think... And is that a similar story? I mean, we've got a company here that went and planted 12,000 hectares of trees to yes. eventually realise the market's not there for it. That's right. And I think the other thing that struck me was the absolute lack of federal government oversight to make sure yeah you know, the 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 paradox here matt would be you know if you've got a self-managed super fund it gets audited there's all sorts of inbuilt oversight to make sure that people don't do totally stupid things but um in the case of the staggering sums of money that were going into mis schemes there was never any um, federal government oversight to say we're going to have an audit process. So, for example, if Blogs Investments wants to put blue gums here or TFS want to put sandalwoods here, there's got to be a bit of due diligence scoping done by an independent government body because we are the ones granting the uh, tax breaks. And um, that was totally absent as far as I know. Sam Paton, an agricultural valuer and consultant with his thoughts on managed investment schemes. He was speaking to Matty Bran. 27 past 12 on the text, Anne in Dongora says, I invested in the 2007 and 2008 Sandalwood schemes. And at that stage, I was due to get $975,000 in return. To end up with nothing is devastating but I must say, not totally unexpected. And this from James. Managed investment schemes are too risky for anyone to invest in. Nearly always these schemes fold up. It's all smoke and mirrors. The text is 0448 And you can go and read more about this story online. Uh, just search MIS, which stands for Managed Investment Scheme. So MIS Sandalwood ABC for the online story. 28 past 12. You're with Belinda Varischetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio, WA. Let's stick in the north for a little bit longer because Australia's newest cotton gin has been built near Catherine in the Northern Territory and it didn't come cheap. The processing plant has cost more than $70 million and a lot of that investment has come from Victorian-based barrister Alan Myers. A King's Council, Alan Myers, has spent decades investing in a broad range of agricultural projects around Australia as well as conservation projects 
right here in the far north of WA. He says there are a number of reasons why cotton in northern Australia is a good investment. Cotton can be grown sustainably, mostly in northern Australia. It'll be grown as it is in most other parts of the world, rain-fed and not through irrigation. There will be irrigated cotton. You get better yields if it's irrigated. We use uh, modern farming techniques and uh, modified cotton seed so that insecticides are scarcely used at all. And the product is a natural product which is in increasing demand throughout the world for use in clothing and for other purposes. It seems to tick all the boxes to me. And for you, what's the key to making this industry viable from here on? That landholders in this region are keen to and not prevented from growing cotton in a sustainable way. I'm optimistic that that will happen and I'm optimistic because it's rational that it should happen and it will be good for the Northern Territory and for the people involved in it. What do you love about the North? Well, it's a great part of Australia. My family have been here now a bit over 200 years, that's to say in Australia. They started as convicts in Van Diemen's land and then went to Western Victoria and since then we've been involved, not in any high profile way, but involved in agriculture all over the country. And more than ag, I mean the work that you do in the North Kimberley, I always got told that I always got told you own those properties because you were so interested in the in the art up there. Well, the properties in the North Kimberley are a conservation uh, enterprise to conserve the natural environment, uh, which I think we're doing successfully, in cooperation with the local people for the most part, and also to conserve and to make known the marvellous heritage of the rock art in northern Australia. Uh, We still don't know exactly by whom it was created and when, but it was a very long time ago, and it's probably the... For our our audience, you're referring to the Bradshaw artwork. Well, Bradshaw and uh, and the pre- and post-Bradshaw artwork, and I, I think it's probably the greatest gathering of rock art in the world. I shouldn't say probably, it almost certainly is. And it's something that should be conserved and Australians should be proud of. All Australians. Alan Myers, KC, now a director of WANT, or Want Cotton in the Northern Territory, and he was speaking to Matt Bran. 28 to 1. Jonathan Hopper in the studio. What's happening in the headlines, Jonathan? Good afternoon, Belinda. A 55-year-old Perth man will be sentenced next May for stalking and attempting to murder the sister of federal MP Kate Cheney. Christopher Bernard Healy appeared in court today via video link from Casuarina Prison and admitted attacking Anna Cheney with an axe at the North Perth Medical Clinic where she works. The attack took place in September this year. 
The Supreme Court in the US state of Colorado has disqualified Donald Trump from its presidential election ballot next year. The decision cites a clause in the Constitution that bars officials who've engaged in insurrection or rebellion from holding office. The ruling applies to Colorado's Republican primary vote in March, but its conclusion would likely also affect Mr Trump's status for the general election in November. And singer Jimmy Barnes has been given the all-clear by doctors to head home for Christmas after undergoing open-heart surgery last week. The 67-year-old last month shared that he'd been hospitalised and was receiving treatment after developing bacterial pneumonia. Thanks, Belinda. Thank you so much for the update. Appreciate that. 27 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Still to come, as I mentioned, it's off to Katanning just before the news at 1. It is the last Katanning sheep market for this year. And I think it's Tracy Kilner going through those details. We'll find out just before the news at one. Also, some nutrient advice for you from, uh, well, an expert in this area as you get to the end. And most of you have. Harvest is over. In fact, we're going to do a crop report, a Giwa crop report on the Country Hour tomorrow. Uh, I think it might even be the final tally, just a little bit trickling in still through the system Uh, That's tomorrow here on the Country Hour. Right now, off to the Bureau of Meteorology, Angeline Prasad with you this afternoon. Angeline, let's start in the Southwest Land Division. How's it looking this afternoon? It's uh, rather hot uh, across much of the Southwest Land Division, especially across the northern and western parts uh, of the of the region, Belinda. So temperatures reaching the 30s into the low 40s across uh, the far northern parts of the central weed belt and the central west. Uh, Earlier this morning, we saw a few lightning strikes uh, to the north of Perth, and they may continue this afternoon. They've they've contracted out into the into the um, into the gold fields currently, but there's a risk this afternoon, especially through the central weed belt area. Uh, those lightning, uh, those dry thunderstorms will return. Uh, so uh, not much rain expected with these dry thunderstorms. Uh, it's going to be fairly sporadic. Uh, those thunderstorms are so just here and there, and if rainfall does occur, it'll be less than a millimeter. So those uh, hot uh, conditions and and it was quite windy this morning as well. So that's fueling the elevated fire dangers across uh, multiple districts uh, uh, across the western parts of the Southwest Land Division. Tomorrow, it's going to be very similar. Um, we have got the West Coast Trough with a firm ridge of high pressure to the south of the state. And uh, these two features will contribute to a very windy start to the day. Maybe slightly windier uh, today, uh, sorry, tomorrow compared to today, just a tad. So and and tomorrow is going to be hotter than today, especially across the the western districts. Um, so temperatures in, uh, reaching into the high 30s and and low 40s again tomorrow. Um, the thunderstorm risk continues tomorrow, but it will be more towards the southern parts of the southwest land division through through the Great Southern, uh, mostly through the Great Southern and the lower part of the of the lower west. Um, so uh, tomorrow there might be a little bit more rainfall not through the Great Southern um, if, if the thunderstorms do occur it'll again be less than a millimetre or, or less than two millimetres but through the southwest district the south coastal and maybe the western parts of the uh, southeast coastal sort of to the west of Esperance there might be a little bit more rainfall maybe uh, two, to, two to four millimetres maybe some areas may say six millimetres a little bit more moisture in the atmosphere there tomorrow uh, the temperatures do ease off a little bit um 
on on Friday and Saturday as we see a new ridge push through. It won't be enough to bring back those milder conditions that we look forward to, but certainly the temperatures will be a little bit less. It'll be a little bit less windy, um, but we do see warmer conditions return early next week again, just in time for Christmas, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yes, I did see some of those temperatures <laughs> for uh, Christmas yes. Day. There's a fair bit of uncertainty for Christmas Day. The t- temperatures are oscillating a bit. And the reason is we we expect the West Coast Trough to move inland on Christmas Day. And there's, at this at this stage, there's some uncertainty when it happens. So if it happens earlier in the day, then we'll see cooler temperatures across the western parts of the Southwest Land Division. But if it happens later in the day, then we'll see fair amount of heat uh, persevere you know, throughout most of uh, tomorrow. Um, the guidance is unclear at this stage and which scenario will pan out. So if you look at temperatures, they're they're oscillating a bit, getting into the high 30s and then coming back into the low 30s. Suddenly after Christmas, the models do suggest that we will be in for a much milder week next week. There might even be light showers closer to the south coast. So yes, Christmas Day is the day we need to pay close attention to. Mm. Well, speaking of being stinking hot, let's go to the north of the state. Yes, it's so oppressive there. I've learned a new word today, foggy. Um, it's, it's just not the daytime temperatures are oppressive. You know, it's the nights are pretty awful as well. We've seen temperatures uh, actually climb up even higher, getting into the higher 40s, so getting above 45. A couple of places have reported 46, 47 degrees, and those are, those are the temperatures we're forecasting uh, for some of these uh, locations. Fitzroy, just a lot of heat that isn't getting flushed out anywhere um, and uh, overnight temperatures are getting into the, uh, or not going below the high 20s some places are not falling below 30 degrees it's it's that bad and unfortunately these heat wave conditions are going to persist for the next couple of days um, we're starting to see a bit more thunderstorm activity uh, today it'll be confined to the eastern parts of the Kimberley and the northeastern interior but over the next couple of days we do see a gradual progression of this thunderstorm activity further west so there might be a bit of easing in the heatwave conditions this weekend. The low intensity to severe heatwave will remain though, but we may see a bit of an easing in the extreme. All right. Back to this afternoon, Ange. Any warnings? Yes. So uh, just to mention a recap of the heatwave warning, uh, we, we still have a, 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 an extreme heatwave warning uh, for the Kimberley and North Interior Districts, and there's a severe heatwave warning for the Pilbara District. Um, and also there are fire weather warnings out for multiple districts across the western uh, parts of the Southwest Land Division. These are the Midwest Inland, Lusur, Yarra Yarra, Swan Inland North, uh, Swan Inland South, so that's the Perth Hills, Brockman and Mortlock fire weather districts. And also there's a uh, marine wind warning out for some of our coastal waters, Geraldton, Lenslin, Lewin, Albany and Esperance. And thank you for that. It's 21 to 1. Richard Hudson here with the rainfall figures. And I can see why there's some fire warnings. We'll get on to some fires in a moment. But the brief uh, rainfall summary is in the Kimberley. Theta copped a downpour with 21 mils. Theta's in the very far north of WA, so just west-northwest of Kununurra on the Gibb River, Columbaroo Road. Nowhere else recorded five mils or above in the northern or eastern forecast districts. In the southwest land division, in the central west, New Norcia recorded seven, and just below that was Canterbury, not geographically, but uh, with four mils. 
in the lower west, I think Julemar Forest topped it with three, and then you've got to go down to the central wheat belt where a few places had between two and three mils, but then Whale had nine mils. Whale is just east of Perth between Meckering and Cunderdon. That's it as far as rain goes. But there are some serious fires burning in WA at the moment. So these are in the shires of 2J, Pingley and Manjimup. I'll start with the one in 2J because that one is at an emergency warning. So that's for people in an area bound by Julemar Road, Harders Chitty Road and Parkland Drive in West 2J and Julemar. Homes in Sand Spring Road are currently under immediate threat. If you're in that area, you are in danger and need to act immediately to survive. So there is a threat to lives and homes. That fire started near Julemar Road in West 2J and it's moving fast in a westerly direction. For more information on that one, that is, again, that's at an emergency warning level. Just go to the Emergency WA website. That's easy to find. Just search Emergency and WA and keep listening to ABC Local Radio. There's also a Bushfire Watch and Act in place in the Shire of Pingley. That was upgraded at midday, that fire. So that's for people west of the Pingley town site, bound by Page Road, North Wandering Road and North Bannister Pingley Road. So there is a possible threat to lives and homes in that area. That fire started near the intersection of Naylor Street and North Bannister Pingley Road in Pingley. And the bushfire is moving in a northwesterly direction. And there's also a bushfire watch and act in place in the Shire of Manjimup. So it's DFES, D-F-E-S, who does the classifications of these. Uh, so that's for people bound by Gumnut Road and Richardson Road to the south, Tattenham Road and Pemberton Northcliffe Road to the east, Malamup Track to the west, or Malamup, and Barker Road to the north in parts of Calcup, Crowia and Mirup. Hope I've got the pronunciations correct. Uh, that bushfire is stationary, contained, but not controlled. So there is still a possible threat to lives and homes in that area. So that's in the Shire of Manjimup. And again, for more information on any of those in the Shire of 2J, Manjimup or Pingley, uh, just go to the Emergency WA website. Again, you just search Emergency WA on the homepage. All the information is very easy to find. It has road closures and the state of the bushfire, etc. all the latest. There are some harvest bands in place. Chittering, the Shire of Chittering's just put one on. Uh, Carnamar, west of Brand Mudge Road, Dalwallanyu, Jinjin and Minginyu. So for more information on any of those, particularly the, uh, the lifting of them, you'll need to get in touch with your shire. There are some total fire bans in place for obvious reasons. Uh, that's for, in the Midwest Gascoigne region, the shires of Carnamar, Chapman Valley, Carew, Dandarigan, Greater Geraldton, Irwin, Minginu, Mora, Morrowa, Northampton, Perengery, Three Springs and Victoria Plains. There's some in the Perth metro region. I'll go through those quickly. Armadale, Chittering, Jinjin, Gosnells, Kalamunda, Mundaring and Wanneroo. I say quickly because they're probably listening to 7.20. In the Goldfields Midlands region, Dalwallanyu, Corder, 2J and Wongan, Balladju. And then in the southwest region, Collie, Dardanup, Harvey, Murray and Waruna. So during a total fire ban, no cooking, camping or outdoor entertainment, no hot work like metalwork, grinding, welding, etc. And no 
off-road use of four-wheel drives, quad bikes and things like that. Any more information that you need on Total Firebands, just do a search for DFES, D-F-E-S, and Total Firebands. And if you want a full list of which shires have a Total Fireband in place, just search Emergency WA. The website there is very easy to follow. Bill, over the last couple of days, we've been talking about those floods in far north Queensland, though. It's uh, one extreme to the other, isn't it? We've got really hot weather here in WA and fires in far north Queensland, incredible rains. And the sugarcane growers and millers in that area, far north Queensland, are urging the state and federal governments not to forget them when it comes to assistance once the current flooding subsides. To give you some perspective on the scale of this particular flood event, it, which sort of took off over the weekend, the rain gauge at a place called Myola, which is just outside Cairns, it hit its highest point since records began. It's actually up 40% on the record that was set in 1977. That is quite bizarre. John Westaway has grown cane, sugar cane near Cairns in that area for most of his life. And he says he's never seen anything like this flood and the water has caused all sorts of damage to infrastructure and his farmland. It's washed a lot of the, lot of the dirt out of the paddocks right down to when you fill the cane in and where the grubber marks are, that's where it's, that's where it's washed to. And it's very rough in there. There's holes and I don't know how the harvest is going to get through next year but um, we've got bigger problems now with the we're going down to have a look at now we haven't got a bridge so we're looking for a bridge <laughs> if anyone's got one i've got a feeling it might be down the the mouth of the barren river there somewhere might be out the reef <laughs> yeah no that's our biggest problem so uh, we're going to meet the um, manager chris hall from the mill and everyone down there and have a bit of a look around yeah you're talking about the condition of the cane. Uh, what were you feeling like on uh, on Saturday night as your paddocks filled up and basically this whole delta became an inland sea? Yeah, we got the flood on Sunday. We, like I just said before, we've been looking very badly for rain, and then we, when it uh, with the cyclone, we we did get rain, not a great deal. We had plenty of it, but then um, when the cyclone went and just must have sat there somewhere turn into a rain depression and just let us have it over well over a metre, metre and a half, two metres or something. It's um, a lot bigger than 77 um, and um, yeah, it's done a fair, fair bit of damage in places. We're talking about your crop of course, but uh, this water came through your home. Has that ever happened before? No, no, it came right up. Um, didn't come through the house. We're very lucky it came right up out of look. Um, came through parts of that, like the laundry and that, but yeah, it didn't come into the into the main house. But um, no, it never ever happened. It didn't happen in '77. But um, yeah, yeah, we, we were we were lucky. But we're going to find out probably you know next year um, what the problems are going to be with the cane. So yeah, anyway, we're just crossing the Barren River at Camarunga right now. It's a sleepy, big brown river that does not belie the danger and uh, the damage that was being inflicted here, downstream, upstream, the whole catchment just at breaking point. John Westaway, um, without a bridge 
and with a crop that you're still not quite sure what it's going to look like, um, ha- how are you feeling about the, the, the next season? It, it must be such a contrast considering how good a job you did at Mulgrave to get the crop off in good time this year. You must have been feeling like you were going to be, you're sitting in a pretty good position. Oh yeah, well $50 a tonne, you're sitting in a good position, but uh, it's kind of changed a little bit now, yeah. No, um, no, you got to be positive and um, the mill will work up now that we've got to cart the cane across or get a floating bridge. Chris said we might get a floating bridge. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, move with the times, eh? Yeah, you got to move with the time. We'll get the navy and or the um, army or somebody, but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's um, it's going to be a problem for us because the um, the big concrete structures, you know, that support the rower line is looks like it's all gone. So, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, after living and farming in the Barren Delta all your life, you you and Gail must have thought you'd seen it all. Yeah, well, we thought we'd seen it all, but um, when you start thinking that, something comes along and bites you in the bottom. So this was the um, this was the big one, or let's hope it was the big one. So yeah, and we got through it. No one's hurt, so yeah, don't worry too much when you get old. Anyway, right up. John Westaway talking to Charlie McKillop on a tour of his cane paddocks near Cairns in far north Queensland. Eleven minutes to one. The Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Western Australia's grain growers are being warned, despite it being a relatively dry season, don't expect there to be too much nutrient retention in your soils. About two-thirds of the state's grain-growing region had a decile three or less rainfall total this year, so that means it was one of the driest years in quite a while. So some farmers might be hoping expensive nutrients they spread onto the farm this year might not have been washed away by the rain. Now, this is something the Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development has been having a look at. Dr Craig Scanlon is Principal Research Scientist for Deep Herd, and he thinks farmers are going to have to apply a fair amount of fertilisers next year. I guess uh, the main messages are that we would expect uh, nutrient surpluses um, from fertiliser applied this year, um, but those surpluses are actually quite small um, in comparison to the nutrient stocks that are, that are in our cropping soils. Uh, so we, we don't really see changes in soil test values following a year like this. We don't really see changes in responses to nutrients uh, next year when we have these sort of surplus carryovers from drier years. So it's more something to to think about over subsequent seasons? Uh, Yes, uh, to a degree. So um, the surplus phosphorus and um, potassium, they will accumulate over time and they will gradually build soil test levels and that will change your response um, over the longer term. But in the shorter term, so from um, coming out of a dry season into next year, uh, we wouldn't expect to see a change in response to uh, applied nutrients next year. Do you think that that... That might surprise some people, given just how dry it was. Uh, yeah, that, that may come as a surprise uh, to some people. And perhaps this is the first really dry season um, they've experienced. But I guess the important bit is the you know the magnitude of those surpluses that you carry forward to the next year. They might be, you know, say, eight kilos of pea per hectare carried forward um, to the next year that might have um, 40 or 50 kilos of pea per hectare already sitting in the soil. So um, we're seeing 
um, relatively small carryovers compared to nutrient stocks. So I suppose as farmers put the headers back in the shed and maybe start to think about having a little little bit of a break over, over Christmas, the thought of, of soil testing is probably not too far from their minds. How vital is it to do those things ahead of next season, Craig? So I think coming out of a dry season, um, soil testing is probably more important um, than usual in that uh, it's, it's really our best way of getting a, um, some quantitative measurements on our background soil um, nutrient supply, um, which we can then use to inform sort of profit optimising rates would, would lie next year. Deep Heard Principal Research Scientist Dr Craig Scanlon with Tara DeLangraft, 8 to 1. And in some more bad news, for those of you getting sick of spending so much money on fertiliser, nitrogen often moves through the soil profile before plants can use it regardless of whether it's organic or straight out of the fertiliser bag. That's one of the initial findings in a two-year Council of Grain Grower Organisations funded study using soil core sampling and moisture probes. Agronomist Nick Ayres conducted the COGO trial at UNA in Western Australia's Midwest and says the dry year produced some interesting results. So basically the moisture probes are showing you what the soil is doing hydrologically. Um, hydrologically you've got either static or non-static soils, so water's either moving or it's not. If the water's moving, it's taking nitrogen with it. So now we can actually use moisture probes to actively monitor if the soil solution is moving and if we're losing nitrogen. And this is the first time that I've ever seen. It's been done in CSIRO and they've done a lot of work uh, in research. This is the first time I've actually seen it brought back into the paddock to turn it into a practical paddock data feed that help a farmer make decisions on nitrogen budgeting basically. So we can actually now we can we can calibrate soil moisture probes to show us how much nitrogen is moving down the profile and how likely we are to induce a deficiency because of that nitrogen loss. You've got a two year project. This is you're looking at your data from the end of the first year, very dry year. Was that actually useful for your work? Uh, it complicates matters. Um, the project was obviously set up after two wet years so we really wanted to focus on nitrogen leaching in a, in a deep deep sand and this year was not exactly the year to look at excessive amounts of water uh, but obviously it was on a fallow so there was obviously some moisture there and, and we did irrigate a plot so we, we actually have managed to collect some really interesting data um, and, and getting some responses that I don't think you know I don't think we've seen them quite like this before and even in such a dry year, we're finding how much nitrogen is actually moving down the profile is quite staggering. Uh, and that really does, I suppose, raise some alarm bills for when we're, when we're really feeding crops and trying to make them go out of the bag, but also gives, gives opportunity to improve efficiencies. So what, what did you find? So basically, what, so the site that where this was um, had nearly 200 mils of rainfall for the year. It had a couple of summer storms prior to sowing and a huge amount of nitrogen from last year's vetch crop. So vetch brand manure. So a massive amount of nitrogen was available to the crop at seeding. Even with a below average year, we were finding that a huge portion of that total nitrogen pool was actually being redistributed down to about 50 to 70 centimetres early in the season. So by the end of June, the site only had 100 mils. A lot of that nitrogen that was originally in the 0 to 10 centimetre fraction of the soil had moved down below 50 centimetres. And that's quite staggering because in that same time, the roots haven't quite grown that far 
So had we seen any more rain in July, that nitrogen could very well could have been lost completely. Wow, that's interesting. So on a small amount of rain, the nitrogen's still moving faster than the plants can grow to get their um, roots down to get it. What do you do with that information? What, what, how can you apply it? Um, I suppose the recommendations have always been to match supply with demand, the crop demand, and now we sort of have a pretty good understanding of what the crop demand is at different times of the year and not really until the end of July and the crop starts growing quite rapidly does it really have the capacity to take on lots of nitrogen. Um, But with an organic nitrogen source, often we do find that that is all available early in the season, which makes it really hard to manage. And this is what the project's sort of focusing on, is if you have this big pool of nitrogen at seeding, how do you minimise those losses? Uh, And and one of the really interesting strategies that um, has been a bit of work been going on in recent history, and I've done a bit of work on this uh, leading into this project, is all about managing that crop density strategy uh, and making sure you actually you're growing enough crop to capture that nitrogen before it leaches. Uh, and, it, and it's really interesting to see that how much a how much we were able to leach the nitrogen, but probably more interestingly, how much we were able to stop leaching in its tracks just by having more crop in the ground. Right, so higher seeding rates. Higher seeding rates. So, and, that, and to me, now we've got some really, really cool graphs showing the leaching curves, and you can actually see the nitrogen moving to depth. And there is very clearly only one treatment that is stopping that nitrogen from moving away from the surface, and that is a, a more dense crop, a, a higher seeding rate, is actually allowing more crop to grow faster to capture that nitrogen before it's lost. Agronomist Nick Ayres speaking about that ongoing research using moisture probes to map nitrogen use and it's been funded by COGO, the Council of Grain Grower Organisations and Nick was speaking to Lucinda Jose. Two minutes to one here on the Country Hour and the last Catanning sheep sale of the year wasn't a big one. It was all done and dusted by mid-morning. As usual, MLA reporter Tracy Kilner has been keeping an eye on it for you. Hello Tracy, can you run through the prices? Numbers halved for our final sale of 2023 with a total yarding of 3,678 mixed quality sheep and lambs. Prices trended down with processors selective while feeder and restocker buyers showed little interest with the exception of store crossbred lambs which welcomed some demand. Plain small frame sheep sold to minimal values with no interest from buyers. Lightweight lambs under 16 kilos carcass weight sold to $54. Weights under 18 kilos carcass weight made up to $56 a head. Trade weights returned 80 to 100 and heavy weights sold to $96 a head. Store use made from $1 to $10. Medium weights sold from 15 to 21. And heavy weights over 30 kilos carcass weight returned from $20 to $30 a head. The heavy weight weathers made from $20 to $35. Ram lambs made from $5 to $40, and mature rams sold from $1 up to a high of $51 for some young-aged rams. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you, Tracy. And the first Catanning sheep sale for 2024 will be on the 10th of January. In response to Quintus's decision to, oh, we'll get rid of all of its MIS uh, sandalwood plantations. This, from someone in the Albany area, we leased land to Blue Gum MIS. When they folded, the receivers decided to break contracts they were entitled to, but we had to court court to find the actual owners of the trees and none could be discovered. The court removed the memorial on our title and the trees became ours. 
Not one investor, mum or dad or corporate, could be found. Thank you for that. News time. It's one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.